0: Thank you everybody for attending again today. Today we're going to talk about group therapy. So the learning objectives for today are to talk about um, psychoeducation groups, which are groups that are set up so that people can uh, learn and educate themselves about traumatic stress, and activity groups, which are groups that are set up for survivors of trauma to be able to increase their social networking and their social skills. And we'll also talk a little bit about trauma-specific group counseling, which is counseling by a mental health professional with trauma survivors, which is more set up uh, for, for treatment. Next slide. Group counseling can, in many situations, be appropriate, because in many cultures and in many societies, it's, it's easier for a number of people to get together to talk about issues than to talk about it in isolation. Also, as we've emphasized throughout this training, the experience of trauma, especially trauma caused by human cruelty, creates isolation and suspicion between people, and groups can help overcome this. So groups can help individuals learn compassion for others and, in so doing, learn compassion for themselves and overcome some of the shame or some of the, uh, the fear associated with trauma. So the goals of any individual group should really be determined by the members of the group and if there's a facilitator, by the facilitator of But normally every group group helps people develop trust and confidence with themselves and with other people. So creating a safe space and establishing trust and confidence with others is is the primary goal of almost every group for trauma survivors. And if somebody's depressed or highly traumatized, they may have sort of lost track of the skills of what it is to make make friends and to maintain friendships. So one of the the goals of groups is to help people practice participating in healthy relationships. Also, um, sometimes depression will cause people to have a foreshortened sense of the future. They don't have a sense of the future, and sometimes they can lack direction in terms of their work or in terms of their other activities that they do in their life. And by meeting together in a group, it gives people a chance to sort of help develop with others a plan for moving forward. So that's relevant to the last bullet point, the one that says developing a sense of of self-direction. That's kind of what that's about. Okay, we're going to talk about what's called an adaptive spiral. So as a person uh, is in a group and gets greater acceptance of himself and of the other people in the group, there's sort of a feedback loop that builds on itself. In other words, as the person's self-esteem increases and self-acceptance of others increases, then so does the other members of the group, and they begin to sort of um, strengthen each other's um, capacity to trust and each other's capacity to accept themselves. Of course, this works best if the members of the group have some similarities. Maybe the similarities might be gender, or the similarities might be the experiences that they've lived through, or the similarities might be the sort of work or profession that they belong to. But usually for this to work, the people in the group should have some similarities. So not everything about a group can be positive. I mean, it depends a little bit on what the group membership is and how the people react to others in the group. So if a person is aggressive or or excessively angry in a group, this this can do damage to the dynamics of the group. Also in some groups, maybe people don't trust each other for various reasons. Maybe it's a situation where there's some fear that something said in the group will be said to somebody on the outside. Or maybe one person starts questioning another and the other person is somewhat passive because of their experience of torture or trauma. That sort of an interaction can be a negative interaction. So what you're looking for is equal and, respect and respectful relationships between individuals so that people can begin to trust each other. Uh, that sort of equality between people in the group is important. Also, if people can discuss the trauma they went through together and they're somewhat similar, the group is, consists of somewhat similar people, this, just the ability to discuss with others can be helpful. A good example would be a bunch of veterans from the Iran-Iraq war who uh, maybe experienced something quite similar and then can come together and talk about the trauma that they all experienced together. That uh, Just the common experience of the war may be sufficient to cause a group to form. Okay, so in a group, the members of the group can learn to um, discuss freely and openly with each other. That's called feedback. I'm not sure how that would be translated in, in Farsi, but people can say to each other, Um, give their honest opinion about things back and forth and and discuss with each other the way that they're interacting. They also can see themselves through the eyes of others, and let me explain what I mean by this. Many people who are traumatized or or who have depression have a very low opinion of themselves. Uh, They've lost confidence in themselves and they have a low opinion. Or they may be embarrassed about rather minor things. And, and sometimes being in a group can give one perspective, can s- allow you to see through another person's eyes that your opinion of yourself that's maybe bad maybe isn't realistic. The other thing is sometimes people who have been traumatized or who are depressed have a difficult time solving conflicts with maybe other family members or friends that are not part of this group. And maybe talking about solving these sorts of problems with a group can be helpful, especially if trauma is affecting a person's ability to, um, to, to solve conflict within his family or within his circle of friends. We're going to talk about three kinds of groups today. We're going to talk about psychoeducation groups, which is groups where people learn about traumatic stress or depression, learn what causes it, and just in sort of, um, normalize the symptoms so that they don't carry so much stigma or shame with the symptoms. Then we're also going to talk about activity groups. So for example, last week I talked about um, an African cooking group where African refugees get together and cook foods from their home together. They don't have to talk about trauma, but cooking together is, is very therapeutic and healthy for them because it allows them some social connections. And then we're going to talk a little bit about group counseling, sort of formal uh, group counseling with a mental health professional where the goals of the group are to meet specific therapeutic uh, needs, a specific treatment plan. So psychoeducational groups are more or less educational in nature. They're intended to provide information to people that may be suffering from either depression or traumatic stress. And they can be preventative in nature. They can help prevent the severity of future symptoms by educating people about what's going on with them so that they can begin to find ways of of addressing their symptoms. And they can reduce stigma and shame. So, for example, we talked earlier about many of the symptoms of traumatic stress are a natural reaction to an unnatural event. That sort of messaging and that sort of discussion can help, present, uh, can help prevent a little bit of the shame that sometimes goes along with this. So in a way, this course has been in some ways not only a course, but also maybe a little bit like a psychoeducation group, because we've been providing education and we've been talking together or communicating together uh, about, about on an educational level about post-traumatic stress and depression. Okay, so now we're gonna talk about a few, uh, um, a few examples of, of psychoeducation groups. Next slide. Psychoeducation groups are normally time-limited uh, and they're usually information-focused, as we've mentioned. Uh, now, oftentimes there's groups specifically focusing on traumatic stress. So a group may happen after, for example, an earthquake or some traumatic event, and it may be some sort of a public education campaign. So, for example, following a traumatic event, many people may start experiencing symptoms of either acute trauma or, or long-term traumatic stress, and they may feel like they may, maybe they're going crazy. Counteracting this, fighting back against this idea that people are going crazy, is one of the main goals of a, of a psychoeducation group. A group could also include the family members of uh, survivors of trauma, uh, and it could talk about how trauma changes the way that one's interpersonal relationships are so that the family members can be educated on how better to communicate with the member of their family that's experienced some sort of trauma. So a a group may talk about re-experiencing symptoms. We talked a little bit about the re-experiencing of trauma, the intrusive memories, when we talked about PTSD. So a a group may provide the information on re-experiencing of of trauma, re-experiencing of memories, and a group may also talk about how and why people avoid things that remind them of the trauma, and this also can be useful if, the grou- if it's a group of family members so they can understand some changes in behavior. And, of course, talk about um, hyperarousal or exaggerated startle response, for example, so why a person's stress level is, is much higher after a traumatic event. And psychoeducational groups for trauma should also try to provide people with some resources in the community if possible. So psychoeducational groups for trauma don't necessarily have to be led by a mental health professional, but they should have a facilitator who can help guide the conversation. So now we're going to talk about psychoeducational groups for depression. Now groups, psychoeducational groups for depression can educate people as to what depression is, And uh, depression, World Health Organization considers depression the biggest mental health problem in the world in terms of its cost to society. So actually, groups for depression can be pretty important. So also by discussing symptoms, it helps people understand that some symptoms of depression may be not the symptoms that they were expecting. So for example, depression isn't just sadness, but it can also be withdrawal from others or irritability or anger, for example. Also, depression can, uh, or a group that focuses on depression, can talk about different ways that a person can recover. Some people uh, recover best with some assistance from a psychiatrist and some medication. Other people recover best, or can recover, merely by expanding their social networks and working very slowly so that they um, recover uh, uh, greater networks with others and and build their strength with other, other human relationships. Another value of groups for depression is that it allows people to kind of keep an eye on each other because depression can on occasion lead to suicide. And so if people are in a group together, they can be monitoring each other and just being supportive of each other. So if somebody becomes depressed enough to commit suicide, that people can be helping uh, check on that person and follow up with that person and create a safety plan. So a psychoeducation group that focuses on depression can help people feel a sense of hope, which is very important to prevent, uh, to prevent bad outcome. Next slide. And a psychoeducation group can also focus on anxiety. Maybe there's a lot of people who are feeling a certain amount of anxiety that does not rise to the level of post-traumatic stress, for example. So, for example, in the aftermath of the BAM earthquake, Almost everybody felt a lot of anxiety. They weren't sure if there was going to be another earthquake following it, and anxiety was very high, particularly in teenagers, uh, the studies have shown after the bomb earthquake. So anxiety groups can be helpful in situations like that. But I want to say that very often, after a traumatic event, people may exhibit some symptoms of all three, PTSD and depression and anxiety. Okay, so some groups... Um, will focus, some groups can also focus on helping people manage their symptoms. So, for example, six months after the bomb earthquake, many people had readjusted, but some people had not. So, for example, uh, a group that focuses on symptom management, a psychoeducation group that focuses on symptom management, maybe they would teach relaxation techniques like we did a couple of weeks ago. Or maybe they would help people um, recognize when they have a negative or, or, or uh thought or a thought that's not, that, that's not adaptive, that's not useful. So when we were talking about cognitive behavioral therapy, we were talking about helping a person be aware when they suddenly have a fear or an anxiety, being able to put a name to that and being able to understand where that fear is coming from and why it exists. So the psychoeducation group can help people identify um, um, and manage strong emotions or strong distress. Not ignore them, but manage them. So, For example, the facilitator can give the group some exercises and they can practice those exercises. So to use the case of the earthquake, maybe people are scared to go into buildings even six months after the earthquake. Maybe the exercise can be to go into the building and to describe exactly what their feelings are as they occur. Another kind of group, maybe you're working with uh, young women and girls who have problems at home with their families and are vulnerable for some reason or another. Maybe they're girls that are working or have some other vulnerabilities, and maybe you want to set up a group to talk about safety. So a group, so a group like that can both... Um, provide a way for girls to do safety planning and sort of safety training, but also teach them ways of relaxation and teach them coping skills so that they don't experience so much anxiety. So activity groups can perform an important function. They, Because we've talked about from the beginning that trauma causes isolation and separates people from others, Um, and activity groups can be a way to counteract that without people having to talk about what happened to them. So, for example, maybe you're working with a bunch of women who've lost their husbands in some sort of a conflict, and it's too painful for them to talk about that together. Maybe they're talking about that individually with counselors or with their doctor or whatever, but they, um, but they still feel isolated, and they've stopped um, meeting with other people, and they've become very isolated. So the activity group can focus on something fun or something useful, so, for example, maybe people are just cooking together or they're sewing together or they're doing some other activity together, but the fact that it brings them together on a routine uh, time, at a set time each week, uh, that, that enables them to break out of the isolation that they feel. So a lot of times these activity groups are really just socialization groups. They're just groups that bring people together in order to, to uh, share an activity with each other and not to be isolated. Um, and they provide a low-pressure environment so that people can communicate without feeling like they have to disclose or without feeling like they have to talk about anything that they don't want to. So I'm sure all of you have known somebody who was depressed or who stopped communicating with others or who was withdrawing from society generally. And I think that you can see an activity, a group of this sort, could be something very useful for them. Again, this is something that a non-government organization or a civil society organization can do without necessarily depending on a mental health professional. So there's many, many different options. You know, there's a lot of different activities that you can structure uh, for different people and also for different ages. So this also is a very, very basic intervention that one can do, for example, with, with children in the aftermath of a natural disaster or civil conflict. So an example of this might be after the earthquake in Haiti, there were play groups for the diff- for the children in different neighborhoods where all the houses had fallen, and the play groups were after school, but they allowed adults to keep an eye on the children and to identify children that were not interacting normally with other children, so that they could follow up with them. Okay, we just had a question. The question is: Is it necessary to have a psychologist at these social gatherings or at these social groups? And the response to that is, is no. Uh, it's useful to have a psychologist, but it's not necessary. Usually, it's necessary to have somebody organizing the event, or the or the or the the activities, uh, who is aware of the need to preserve safety and aware of the need that the people may not be safe, necess- may not feel safe necessarily with one another. So safety can mean confidentiality, so sometimes it's good before a group activity like this starts to have everybody agree to certain rules, including that they won't talk about anything private that's disclosed as they're doing these activities. They won't talk about it to anybody outside of the group. And it's also good if everybody in the group, if there's a shared understanding that the purpose for the group is to get to know new people and to expand social connection uh, so that they understand that that's an actual goal of what they're doing. So there doesn't have to be a psychologist or even a leader, provided that everybody agrees on the same set of rules. Okay, now we're going to talk about actual group counseling. In group counseling, as opposed to activity groups, group counseling actually requires actually does require a psychologist. So in group counseling, the uh, the, the counselor is there to help people talk together about their thoughts and their feelings and about their actual experiences related to the trauma or related to the depression or related to whatever problem that they're facing. So in group counseling with a mental health professional or a physician or some sort of a medical professional, it's even more important to have a group that shares something in common that's similar. So for example, you wouldn't put teenagers with old people necessarily uh, you might want to have a group, especially in Iranian society, that's either female or male, for example. So with the psychologist present, the people in the group learn and practice new ways of, of, of communicating with each other and new ways of handling relationships, interpersonal relationships. One of the goals of group counseling, of course, is to help people learn that they're not alone with their problems, that, they, that the others share the same problems and others share the same emotions or feelings. But, for example, in a group counseling session, there may be some things to talk about that would be more difficult to talk about in other sorts of activity groups or other sorts of groups that that don't have a psychologist present. An example might be if everybody in the group is a woman who has experienced sexual assault. So maybe in a therapy group, in a counseling group with a psychologist present, it might be possible to talk about... Uh, how some of the women maybe feel that they're dirty or defiled or somehow made dirty by what happened to them, and, that, and, and to talk about how, in fact, that they're not actually dirty or defiled. Uh, but talking about these sorts of very sensitive issues in a group setting sometimes requires a psychologist or a facilitator um, so that it can be managed. So it may be both about learning to manage symptoms, but also learning in a structured environment Learning from the other members of the group, because sometimes everybody in the group is, is an expert on whatever, whatever happened to them. So, for example, if you're a woman who is a victim of this sort of assault, maybe it's helpful to hear from another woman who is also victimized by this same problem and has been able to um, no longer think of herself as somehow dirty or somehow polluted by what happened to her. But this is why you need a facilitator or a psychologist, because it's necessary to help people manage the emotions that come up when they talk about such events, and also to manage the relationship between the different people in the group. So different people get a chance to speak, and different people get a chance to react with each other in a respectful way. Okay, there can also be groups that focus on helping people come to terms with grief, Grief doesn't go away spontaneously. It really has to be talked about. But because it's so painful to talk about, people don't want to talk about it very much. And sometimes a group is a really, really good way to do this, provided somebody is facilitating it who can help modulate emotions. Usually it's important that these groups are time-limited. They may be, say, ten sessions, for example, and somebody should facilitate them. And the group should be focused on some sort of a goal. Or some sort of goals. So people should describe what they want out of the groups. And it shouldn't be told to them what they should get out of the group by the leader. They should talk about what they want out of the group. So, for example, uh, a goal of the group may be, maybe a mother wants to be able to, maybe she's going to think about the loss of her child every day and she can't help that. But maybe she wants to be able not to cry about it if she talks to a neighbor about it, for example. Maybe that's the goal. But it can be helpful for a mother in this situation to talk with other mothers who have experienced the same thing on a time-limited basis, to know that there's a certain amount of time to talk with other women and to hear how they have managed with their grief. And sometimes just discussing the grief can make it a little bit lighter. Sometimes people can still find ways to get together and talk, and I think there's probably a lot of ways in Iranian society maybe not for counseling groups, maybe not for formal counseling groups, but for informal groups, for people to be able to discuss their sadness or their trauma. One of the most important things, maybe, that the groups can do is um, to give people a sense of belonging. We all need to to belong to a family or to a society or to a community of some sort, and the groups can form a sense of community. And particularly for survivors of some sort of trauma caused by human cruelty, Forming a community is a really important thing. And, for example, even if people share the same opinion on some current issue, maybe it's still possible to put together a group to, for example, just to have a group for healing where people maybe are, don't talk about politics or some current issue so that just, just to assure that people remain safe. But it can still be possible to do a trauma group, even avoiding the other, the other questions that maybe uh, are more delicate. Okay, we're going to talk a little bit about forming and leading groups. We're going to talk about preparing, and we're going to talk about policies, goals, and the role of the facilitator. Next slide. Okay, for a group to work well, it's really important to give a lot of thought to who are the members. So I've said several times, but I want to repeat, it's important to have people that have similar experiences and usually similar uh, cultural background and often the same gender. It doesn't have to be, but usually the people who form part of a group should be pretty similar. The only exception is that you can have a mix of different people. You can have some people that are more shy and quiet and some people that are more outgoing. You just, as the facilitator, you just have to encourage everybody to participate. But one of the things that you should look out for is that you should not include anybody who's going to become very, um, going to react very negatively if anybody questions them on anything or anybody says anything about them. So somebody who has uh, what they say in English, a thin skin, or is is defensive. So this summarizes uh, people that probably should not be part of a group. These people may need mental health services and they may need help, but it may be better to do this on an individual basis. And not everybody benefits from group, from a group therapy. So it's also important to remember that maybe if, you, if somebody is in the group is not benefiting or becoming worse in some ways, to have a backup plan so that they can see somebody individually, some sort of individual counseling. So one of the things to do is to meet with everybody who's going to be in the group individually before the group starts, to discuss a little bit about what they want out of the group, and also to talk about some rules so that you really have an understanding with them about rules about, for example, confidentiality. Also it's important that everybody knows that group therapy may not be a cure by itself. It's only an aid, it's something that assists, but it's not, um, it's not an end in itself. There was also a question about whether group therapy is better for men or women, or whether men uh, get anything out of it. And I would say, okay, the question was whether uh, there's a difference between men and women uh, being interested in group therapy or getting benefit. The answer is it can be beneficial for both. But women generally tend to be more, um, more likely to communicate with each other, and it tends to... The experience of people that I've worked with has been that groups with women tend to be a little bit easier. It may be that they're just better at communicating with one another. Okay, good. Um, So there's several policies that, that one should have in place. The most important one is confidentiality. What people talk about within the group is not talked about with people on the outside. There's also can be rules about communicating respectfully, so not talking over somebody else and letting somebody finish what they, what they say and also making sure that everybody in the group has a chance to talk if they want. The space where you meet should also reflect that people are equals, so it's better to have the chairs in a circle than to have one facilitator at the head of the room and everybody else in the back. And also, joining a group means you have some responsibility to the others to hear their story just as they hear you. So that means that there should be, people should have an understanding that while they can occasionally miss the group, they should make a commitment to go to the group and not have a lot of absences. So the experience of torture and trauma means that people cannot, you know, they, 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 they're not in charge of things. And so it's important, it's important that, that this, this meeting is a free meeting. People can say what they want. They're not forced to say anything. And usually a group will consist of up to eight people with one or two counselors. This is for the therapy group. This is not necessarily for the other groups we talked about, like the activity groups. But for the therapy group, usually up to eight people and one or two counselors. This is usually the way it's done in refugee programs uh, in Europe or in the U.S. or Canada or Australia. But you can experiment. If you're a mental health professional, you can experiment. This is not a hard rule. So the group brings together people um, that will support each other but also challenge each other. So by challenge each other, I mean push people to do a little bit more in their lives. So, for example, the group may help somebody um, go to the market, for example, if they're scared of the market. They may put subtle, gentle pressure on them to, do more active in their, to be more active in their life. So there's three basic sorts of relationships in the group. There's the relationship between one member and another who are communicating with each other. There's the relationship between each individual member and the group as a whole. And there's the relationship between the member and the facilitator or the leader of the group. So relationship between member to member is based on mutual respect. So it's based on listening and speaking and 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 sharing with each other on an equal basis. And the relationship of the member to the group is based on an understanding that the group has a common purpose, that everybody wants the same thing, and based on affection or good feelings toward everybody within the group. And the relationship between the member and the facilitator is that the member understands that the facilitator sometimes has to manage the group in a way that everybody gets to talk and also that the that the group moves forward toward its toward its goal. I think actually we're going to stop here because it's almost 12, and I want it's almost the end of the of the course uh, for today. And I wanted to leave a little bit of time for questions. We have a couple of more slides about the role of the facilitator. I'm going to do those. I'm going to start with those on Wednesday, and I'll do them quickly on Wednesday. But I think we should stop now and see if there's any questions. Okay. Well, a therapeutic group. First off, the group that he's already part of can be very therapeutic and very useful for him. I think that that can be a very good thing. The difference with a therapeutic group would be that there would be a mental health counselor or a mental health professional that might focus on helping people come to terms with specific symptoms. But to, to go together as a group into, into nature and with other people that have experienced the same past is a really helpful thing. I think it's really to be encouraged because this allows people to rebuild trust and it allows people just even sharing one's information with others is a helpful and useful thing. So uh, a a counseling group can be useful with a mental health professional, but the group that he's already part of is, is, is a very useful and good thing. The difference would be, for example, between a therapy group, maybe if there was a psychologist who was part of the group the psychologist could say, does everybody re-experience the same symptoms in the same way? And then people could talk about how they have intrusive memories. And then the psychologist could talk to them about how to, how to get sort of control over those symptoms. That would be the only difference. Well, one other thing I was going to ask about is, you know, a lot of times people who suffered from the war or from the, the bad violence in Iraq, in, in the south of Iraq, a lot of times, hosaniyas, meeting houses that are religious, function for many people as sort of a group, sort of almost like, a, almost like an activity group or a therapy group. And I think under some circumstances and for some people, there may be uh, a possibility that, that religion, if it's generous religion, it can, can have a useful purpose for some people. Does anybody think anything about that? I think, again, this is something very personal. So for some people, a sense of connection, a sense of spirituality is found in nature. For other people, it's found in religion. It just I, I'm only bringing this up because I think each society has already within it some different techniques for people to get together uh, and, and form these groups automatically within the society. On Wednesday, we'll finish up with groups. There's only a little bit more on groups. And then we'll talk about self-care. Self-care for people who work with trauma survivors. Uh, but uh, I, I'm still here, so if there's other questions, anybody can ask questions. Also, some people had asked about services for, for Iranians who are not in Iran who've left, so where they can find mental health services in Europe or Australia or other places. I will post some, uh, some um, contacts for people on the discussion board for that. There's also a question from user 1111, Uh, so I'll answer that one right now. The question is, a psychiatrist on the TV said that some people choose to be depressed because they don't want to take responsibility for their lives. And the, uh, the, the student wants to know if that's true. My experience is that nobody chooses to be depressed. Nobody wants to be depressed. And in fact, when people emerge out of depression, sometimes they feel bad about the time that was lost when they were depressed. So usually depression is not something that somebody is just making up in order to get advantage. I also disagree with the idea that depression is a choice. People, when they fall into a depression, they usually don't do it intentionally. It's something that happens. Um, And there's different kinds of depression. There's depression that's actually a mental illness and there's depression that's caused by a traumatic event or by some other negative event. The important thing, what I wish the psychiatrist had said, is that depression is treatable and that it responds well to medication or counseling or both, but it's treatable. Well, it varies by individual. So without treatment, a person can remain depressed for a long time, but it, it, it depends. I mean, sometimes people cycle in and out of depression where maybe a depression will be a matter of three months or six months or even a year. But, uh, but if a person is feeling significantly, seriously depressed for more than a month, it's probably a good idea to get some medical help. It's also important to consciously and carefully maintain social connections and to do things outside of the house and outside of one's normal life. And the reason for this is that depression over time can be like a wall. It can wall you in very gradually until suddenly you realize that you've missed some friends, you've missed some time, you've missed a lot of opportunities in your life. So it's important to create a plan for yourself, an activity plan for yourself, to make sure that, you, that even if, if a person is feeling depressed, they don't break those social connections with others. Also, um, there was. Uh, I posted some information for doctors on medication for PTSD. I will find and post some information on medication for depression on, on the discussion board also. So I'll do that within the next 24 hours. And depression responds pretty well to medication. But there's some good medications and there's some less good medications. So let me find guidelines for you to share with, with your doctor.